Onze almachtige God en Jemelse Vader, ons staan weer van ochtend voor die troon van genade en ons verklaar weer van ochtend dat hij heilig is en dat daar niemand in niks is zoals Eni. And Father, as we come before your throne again this morning, we ask, Lord, that you would come and presence yourself with us. That you yourself would be ministering to us, even if you are in your own homes. Come and touch us this morning, because we desire to see you high and lifted up. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So if you're watching from your homes this morning, and if it does get a bit sticky, just pause it and um, wait a few seconds and then press play and then it should be fine to go again. So this morning we're going to be picking up from where we left off last week in the story of, of Nehemiah. And um, I think that today my job seems pretty straightforward as the text that we're going to be looking at today outlines for us Three points that are quite easy for you to pick up as you read through the text that we are going to be reading. But before we get into that text, I just want to bring you up to speed for those who perhaps may not have been tracking with us so that you can follow along with us this morning in this series to help you just to get some context for where we are at in the part of the story that we will be looking at today. So as we know, the Israelites had been in captivity in Babylon, and then in the year 539 BC, while the Israelites were in captivity in Babylon, Babylon gets conquered by Persia, and King Cyrus then takes over. King Cyrus allows the Israelites to return to Jerusalem, but only 50,000 of them decide to actually return out of the possible millions who were there. So this group of Israelites returned to Jerusalem and they returned to a city that is in ruins. But they go about starting to rebuild. And they start with the temple, but they only lay the temple's foundations. But then their interests shifts to their own homes and the temple construction stands like that for about 16 years. And Craig, in one of our past sermons, helped us to see that even though their worship was in place, it made no difference to their community. And then after that period, God sends them prophets, Zechariah and Haggai, and we have their books. And those prophets helped these people to get their priorities straight and to put God first again, and then they go about and they finally finish building the temple. Eighty years pass, and then Ezra comes, who's a priest, and he brings along with him about 2,000 people who are made up of worship leaders, priests, servants, and he comes to give teaching and spiritual guidance to the people. And then 11 years after Ezra, we meet Nehemiah, or as they would have called him in Hebrew, Nehemiah. Now we are going to read from chapter 2, verses 11 to 20, and we'll, we'll break it up into those three sections under the three points that so clearly stands out to us. And those three points I can share with you right now up front 
in case you're going to run out and get yourself a cup of coffee, the first one is receive the vision. The second one is share the vision. And the third one is prepare for opposition. So let's read. You can put that first slide up now, Josh. It reads as follows in Nehemiah's words. He says, I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding. By night I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on towards the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. And we'll stop there for a minute. So Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem. And he arrives after seven months from when he first spoke to the king and got permission to return back to Jerusalem. It would have been for him four months of prayer, four months of lament and preparation. And somewhere in the region of approximately three months of traveling the 2,700 kilometers with his entourage and all of the materials that he had acquired. And so he gets there. And I imagine that it would have been a lot for him to take in upon his arrival. You know that feeling when you're at work and you get a call from home to say that something's wrong. And, and in that moment, you feel this anxiety and this desire and haste to return back to home. Now, I think Nehemiah would have felt that feeling of anxiety, but he would have felt that coupled with a range of other feelings, I believe. Because you see, Nehemiah had actually never been in Jerusalem before. He was born in Babylon, which was now called Persia. And so, while he was there, he would only have had reports and historical accounts to inform him, and so it would have been all of these feelings coupled with the sense of when he arrived in the town of Jerusalem of, wow, I've arrived in the city of my forefathers, in the city of my ancestors who were conquered, taken and enslaved, but now we are back. All of the days of mourning the days of weeping, of fasting, of praying, a sense of anxiety, of travel. And now he is here in Jerusalem, seeing in the flesh the mental pictures that he would have had for all those months. We can go to the next slide now, Josh. And so the text tells us that Nehemiah begins with a moonlit tour 
of the walls to assess the damage and the scope of the work that needed to be done. And the damage to the walls was so extensive that he wasn't able to go all the way around the city of Jerusalem. We see there with that red line, if you look at the map, that he would have left out of the valley gate, traveled down past the down gate where they would have disposed of their refuse, gotten to the bottom of the picture there near the fountain gate and the king's pool, which was where their water source was. And because of the, the, the gradient of the Kidron Valley, the wall would probably have caused such a lot of rubble down there that he would have been unable to continue his path. And so he dismounted and carried on as far as he could, turned around and entered back into the valley gate where he first started. Now it's quite interesting to note how secretive he is. He didn't want anyone to know yet. Nehemiah knew that there would be opposition. And so he waited to share what God had put on his heart to do, even though he had brought along with himself building materials. You see, rebuilding these walls of Jerusalem, like so many other challenges that we face in life, is in fact a two-sided problem, a two-sided issue. There is the technical side, but then there's also the human side. And Nehemiah was aware that there was more to this project than just reconstructing a broken wall. He was also reconstructing community. He was reconstructing security. He was reconstructing focus. He was reconstructing the identity of a nation. And so as we read through this, we see that the strategy that he exercised revolved around prayerful patience. Nehemiah wanted to wait upon the Lord so that he could allow the Lord time to birth a vision within him. And so the vision was born in secret. We'll go to the second slide now, and we see that the second element of this text is Nehemiah actually sharing his vision. And this is what it says from verse 17 and 18. He says, Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. So four months of lament, of prayer, preparation, three months of travel, three days of assessing, of going out by night, and he is finally ready to share what God has laid on his heart. And so he stands there before this group of people, the depressed, the fearful, skeptical citizens of Jerusalem, and says, look at what God has already done. Through the heathen king of Persia, Nochals. Isn't it amazing how God is able to use anyone and anything to bring about his purposes? And he says to them, God provided me with safe passage. 
He provided me with timber and materials and the authority and permission to build. God has provided what is needed to get this job done. And so he stands before them, knowing what the problems are, but ready to begin the hard work of rebuilding. And this encourages and gives hope to the people. He says, see that God is already at work. Join in with him. Now, when we think about Nehemiah's words, we see there that Nehemiah's words also give us an insight into his motives for rebuilding the wall. And they help us to understand why reconstructing the city wall would have been so important to him. Nehemiah was obviously concerned by the city's security. Without a wall, Jerusalem was vulnerable to attack, and there was nothing to stop another nation in the surrounding nations to invade Judah's capital city. So simple self-defense required a wall. But a deeper motive lay behind Nehemiah's construction plans. He tells us that the Jews faced derision. They faced mockery and disgrace because of the state of their capital city. But even more seriously, a dismantled wall brought dishonor to God. And so we can imagine the teasing insults of Israel's enemies. They would say something like, what kind of God would allow his chosen people to live in a ruined city? This Jewish God that you serve can't be all-powerful if he allows his own capital to remain in ruins. You see, behind Nehemiah's ambition lay a desire for the glory of God and the honor of his name. And so a derelict city not only brought disgrace to God's people, it brought dishonor to God himself, something that Nehemiah could not stand, and so he responded to it. We'll look at the last two verses, and then we'll wrap up. We'll go to the next slide there, and we'll read verses 19 and 20, which says, But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Abonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Now, Bible scholars debate exactly who these characters were, this Sanbalat and Tobiah. But to cut a long story short, it seems that Sanbalat was the governor of Samaria, the province which was just north of Jerusalem and Judah. Tobiah, meanwhile, was probably a ruler in Ammon, a small land to the east. And this third antagonist, Geshem the Arab, a man who would probably have been the most powerful of the three, historians believe that Geshem was a powerful provincial governor who ruled over Edom and Moab 
and parts of Arabia to the east. And so he was the ruler, in other words, of a large territory to the south and east of Judah. And so between these three opponents of Nehemiah, they had effectively Jerusalem surrounded. Their territories encircled Judah from top to bottom. Sanbalat, Tobiah, and Geshem were influential opponents who had the potential to frustrate Nehemiah's ambitions. Now, some of us will be familiar with the name Igor Sikorsky. Igor Sikorsky was the man who successfully was the first one to create a helicopter in 1939. And since childhood, he was always fascinated with flight. But when he was 12 years old, apparently his parents told him that competent authorities had already proved human flight impossible. But Sikorsky went on to persevere, and he built the first helicopter. And, and so in his American manufacturing plant, he put a sign up, which I'm sure some of you may have heard, that says, according to recognized aerotechnical tests, the bumblebee cannot fly because of the shape and weight of his body in relation to the total wing area. The bumblebee does not know this, so he goes ahead and flies anyway. So Nehemiah, I believe, would have been able to relate to that thought, to that sign. And you know, Nehemiah, when he first heard about what was going on back in his hometown, the town of his ancestors, he could have said, okay, Sarah, Sarah, whatever will be, will be. But Nehemiah and his story shows that whenever you try to accomplish anything of significance for the Lord, you will face strong opposition. And so that thought of whatever will be, will be, was a thought that never even crossed his mind. He was so wanting to persevere, to bring glory to the name of God, that he was willing to face opposition. Nehemiah faces opposition on a number of occasions, and the opposition actually grows, as we will see as we continue in the rest of the story and I think what we take from this is that following God means that you will have opposition. The Christian life is not devoid of opposition. Right now, we are in a season of opposition. And much of what we are wanting to accomplish is being opposed simply by the circumstances that we are in. In this story, even though it was God's will for the wall to be rebuilt, I think we must note that he did not remove the opposition. Even though it is God's will for us to grow strong in faith and to labor to advance his kingdom, God does not remove the opposition that we may face. So as we come to the end, what can we take from the, this part of the story today? I think, as I've mentioned, we are currently in a season where it is very difficult to have a vision for the next steps. 
Um, even as our church leadership meets, as the elders lead, meet, we struggle to find out what the next few weeks will hold, what the next few months will hold. And so the season brings along with it for us a difficulty in setting a vision for the next while. And it, what makes it so difficult is the opposition that we face. And it seems that we are facing opposition from every side. And so for us, our Sanbalat, our Tobiah, and our Geshem is that finances are tight. Relationships take strain. Health is of paramount importance. Schools face uncertainty. We have issues of employment insecurity. It seems like we are hard-pressed from every side. And so I think what we can see and take from Nehemiah's strategy here is a strategy of prayerful patience combined and followed with action. When we look at Nehemiah, we see that he waited on the right time to speak to the king. He waited on the right time to go and inspect the wall at night, and then he acted, he went. He went, he waited on the right time to share his vision, and then he did so when the moment appeared. He waited on the right moment to face his opposition, and then he acted without fear. Every one of his actions was preceded with prayer and then action. And it was, when it was time for him to act on the vision that he had, he did, and he found that the people joined with him and were on his side. And so I think a summary of his strategy could probably be relationship with God. Involving God with every step of the way. And so I think for us, for this next while, going forward, we should probably deepen our relationship with the one who gives vision, who enables action, and who uses opposition. Beyond that, I think there's something more. You know, we just spoke about our personal lives, but what about our nation? All of Nehemiah's actions that we read about here in this portion of the text were directed at the community at the nation at large, and at building that nation, so that ultimately God would be glorified. And so for us as a nation, my fellow South Africans, we are also dealing with opposition. Currently, we have opposition of corruption, of nepotism, prejudice, racism rearing its head, a rampant pandemic, and the list goes on. And so let me ask you, let me ask us, what vision do you have for our nation? Because I believe as important as having a personal vision is, so too should it be to have a vision for the nation in which God has placed us. And so I think this morning that we need more visionaries like Nehemiah, in our nation. Let's pray. As we pray this morning and as you close your eyes, I want you to consider for a moment 
If you were to take a walk around the perimeter of your spiritual wall, what damage would you find? Is your spiritual city in a condition to bring glory to God? Come, Holy Spirit. As you are praying there in your homes, as we are praying here, ask God to come and to help bring restoration. Father, we thank you for your vision. We thank you that you have a vision for our lives, for our nation. Come and work in our hearts this morning now. Come by the power of your Holy Spirit and touch us where we are right now. Come and reignite within us that vision. And Father, where there is brokenness, where repair is required, we ask by the power of your Holy Spirit to come and move to come and erect again what the enemy has come and broken down. Come and strengthen us as we face opposition in this season. We eagerly desire to see your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Bevan. Bevan's uh, sharing has certainly asked us many, many questions. Whether you're here sitting in person or you are listening at home, you're online. And this is our response time now. It's a beautiful time for a ministry response time. I'm going to, to invite you to take this opportunity to come up just to share with us what's your sense, just on what the Lord has said to us this morning through Bevan's talk. What is the Lord saying to you? For those that have the benefit of coming up front, in a moment you'll have your opportunity, but for those of us that are online, please pause. Take a moment to reflect. What is God the Holy Spirit saying to you this morning. And I want to encourage you, you may be online, but you can write it down. You can still email and WhatsApp and share. So please take a moment to do that. If it's uh, going to be any easier, a simple question would be, what would be your takeaway from this morning? It might be difficult, it might be hard to share, but I want to invite the first brave soul to come up to share your sense on what the Lord has said and is saying to you, to us, our city, and our nation as well. This is your moment to come up.
I think um, following on from last week on Craig's sermon, where he asked the question, so who would miss out or lose out if I didn't? Um, if I didn't, if I wasn't obedient, if I didn't trust, has had a huge impact on me this week. Almost life-altering change in going, if I don't do this, someone's going to be poorer for it. And it's a simple act of obedience. Um, you know, it might be making that phone call. It might be um, our nation changes in a vast spectrum and it changes one by one. So we need both and. And um, I've been so challenged this week, so much so that I, I've had to have critical conversations and think about taking up challenges I'd put away years ago and going, is it time? Um, you know, is it time to pursue studying further? Is it time to, to kind of go take up the challenge? Is it time to, to see that if I don't, maybe other people won't be equipped? Um, yeah, and I think that just ties in with this morning with what Bevan has just shared with, you know, we need visionaries for our nation, we need visionaries for our city. Is it time? Thank you, Cindy. Is there somebody else who has a sense of uh, receiving a vision, of being able to share that vision? And as we heard, there obviously will be opposition because that vision is from the Lord. Thanks. Yeah, I think the thing that has struck me is the fact that um, often when we start out doing something different or something new that we feel called to do, and then things start going wrong, we might question, is this actually the right thing? Is this what I should be doing? And I think, um, so for Hillary and myself, we're busy running an online Love After Marriage workshop at the moment, and some things have gone wrong. You know, there's some couples who've already withdrawn from the workshop, there's some couples who are really struggling. We've had load shedding, which has affected some people's ability to be online for the workshop. So there is opposition. I think the encouragement for me is to say this is still the right thing that we should be doing, and we will persevere, and we'll encourage the couples in the workshop to persevere through the opposition and not allow that to discourage us. Amen. Um, Bevan, as you were praying, I actually just had a vision, and it's not really a vision because we see it every day, but as you drive out Somerset West and you look at the townships to the right and to the left, those walls have been broken down. They've actually been stolen. Um, and it's a disgrace. It's a disgrace on us as a community. And I just, as we were sitting and you were talking, I just just was coming back up again that actually God has such a deep purpose and such a deep vision for those people within those communities. But the walls have been stolen. The communities have been forgotten about. Lord Jesus, would we begin to be the Nehemiahs? Would we begin to be the Nehemiahs that would just embrace for the community to rebuild those walls, to rebuild those homes? Would, would compassion rise? Would compassion rise again within us? That we would lift up our eyes beyond ourselves. We just thank you for, for members of our community who are so busy and active in those spaces. 
But Lord Jesus, would we, would we begin to share that vision? Would we begin to share that compassion? We just thank you, Father God, for the men and the women already rebuilding in those spaces. But Father God, would we join? Beautiful, thank you. There's nobody else at this time. We want to continue to uh, think through and process. And perhaps for some of us it might not be immediate, but long after this meeting is over, God the Holy Spirit will continue to speak into our hearts. I want to encourage us to, to share that. To receive the vision is also sometimes to lose it. But to share it is to be accountable, to act on it. It's beautiful to share with people what the Lord is saying to you. And how will you know that this vision is from God? Simple. We heard this morning, there will be opposition. <laughs> That's been promised to us by the Lord Jesus himself. In this world, we shall have opposition, trials, challenges, tribulation. And therefore, it's imperative that we share with others and press on to act on the vision God has given us. And as we end our meeting this morning, the thought that came to my mind was in, in rebuilding. That's our theme, our series that we've uh, started a few weeks now. That part of the work of, of God is to renew our minds. And you will see this prefix coming through, this prefix of renew our minds. And I'm sure we'll find verses in the Bible, in Romans, talking about the renewal of our minds. But God also restores our souls in this time of rebuilding. And the Holy Spirit also revives our spirit. He does all this beautiful work in his rebuild. And so I want to bless you now. As you continue to think through the rebuilding of our lives, of our people, our community, our city and nation. And now may the grace and the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ who rebuilds our lives. May the love of God, our Heavenly Father, who rebuilds His beautiful love all over again into our hearts and minds. And may the sweet Holy Spirit who enables us to rebuild be our portion this day, this week, and until we meet again. In Jesus' name, amen.